Acts chapter 28, 17 through 31. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regards to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that your Holy Spirit would be free to walk among us this morning that you would open our eyes, that you would uh, open our ears, that we may hear your gospel, that we may turn and believe. And Lord, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You. you may be. Well, we do this morning have quite a lot to celebrate. Uh, if you look around, you can see new babies who have been uh, born to us. You see uh, families that have actually uh, joined and coming together and celebrating our new graduates. So if you would, I'd love to just actually celebrate our graduates now uh, just with a round of applause. Um, big accomplishments. Uh, we've got other people who are starting seminary uh, coming up. It's a big deal. There's lots to celebrate uh, here at City Church. But uh, one of the biggest things that I want to celebrate, no surprise this morning, is Mother's Day. I want to begin by just wishing you all a happy Mother's Day. And I, and I say all specifically, uh, because instead of receiving that as individuals, what I'd actually like is for you to think of it uh, together as a celebration of motherhood. I want us to receive it together. For many, Mother's Day is a sad reminder of loss, uh, loss of a mother. 
Uh, it may be uh, specifically hurtful because uh, you had a neglectful mother, you had a, a broken relationship that came by way of uh, addiction to substances or a divorce. Uh, Mother's Day is not all happy for everyone. For those who are still awaiting uh, God's blessing uh, in children, uh, it can be a particularly uh, difficult day. It can be a time that is uh, filled with longing. Uh, for those of us who have uh, kids, uh, for ladies, um, it can be just a reminder of the kind of uh, failures in motherhood, the things that just perpetually kind of stand out in front of you, difficulties that you've had, things that are hard for you to overcome. Uh, today can be particularly hard because there are a variety of expectations that we have going into Mother's Day, right? Uh, I've heard this uh, from not just my own wife, but other uh, ladies as well. Mother's Day kind of builds up an expectation for celebration. And so this morning, what I want to do is include everybody and just say, let us have a happy Mother's Day. I want us all to take a moment and behold the institution of motherhood with great reverence. You see, motherhood is something that we in this room, uh, I think, do revere, and we might take that for granted. It was just this week. Uh, I don't normally comment on these kinds of things, and it wasn't a major thing, but I think it's an indication of things to come where a congresswoman in a congressional hearing uh, decided that instead of using the word uh, mother, uh, use the word uh, uh, birthing person to describe uh, mothers. Use that term to actually describe those who can bear people who can bring them into the world. She presumably was doing this to signal some sort of accommodation for uh, so-called transsexuals who, despite taking a different identity, still have the biological ca capability of bearing children. Here at City Church, we, we will say women. We will say mothers. Why? why? Why do we do that? Why will we choose to do that? Because women are amazing. They are endowed with God's image. That means that if you've never thought about it before, they have the dignity of deity. They are literally like showing something unique about God's very nature. Every woman is worthy of honor. And, and really, despite having the specific superpower to make human beings, maybe even more profoundly in that image, they get to image forth the great creator. Mothers, therefore, are exalted co-creators with God. They are civilization-building, character-forming, soul-crafting, value-instilling, citizen-nurturing, child-rearing heroes. And I, I had to like, think for a moment about heroes because I actually wanted to use a more, we'll say, explicit term to describe what you amazing women are. Y'all are incredible. You really are doing all of these things, unless you think I'm just puffing you up. Again, I'm still just talking about motherhood as an institution. So despite some of the baggage that we bring into all of this, motherhood is an institution worthy of all of our reverence and protection. It's something that we should all be involved in guarding and lifting up. So in that sense, I want to say today, happy Mother's Day. Maybe a round of applause all the more for the mothers that are in the room. Now for me, I think about Christian mothers, the ones who are in this room in particular. They have my respect because they have the added responsibility to raise their children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. 
They, uh, tend, uh, to, uh, they actually tend to the eternal souls of our little disciples that are among us. And this morning, I want for you to take and really hold on to the fact that you are a carrier of the kingdom. You are a carrier of the kingdom. You are a kingdom bearer. And this is actually how it relates to Acts chapter 28, verses 11 through 31. You see, Acts chapter 28, verses 30, 11 through 31 is all about kingdom carriers, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters. Everyone who is in Christ Jesus is a kingdom carrier. And what we discover in this set of verses, what I intend to prove to you this morning, is that Christians carry the conquering kingdom. Christians carry the conquering kingdom. And we're going to learn a few things on this journey this morning. We're going to learn a little bit about what the kingdom is. If Christians are to be the carriers of a conquering kingdom, we need to know what the kingdom is. What we will learn this morning is that the kingdom is a kingdom of hope. It is a kingdom second of healing. And thirdly and finally, it is the kingdom of God. Where do I get this? I want for you to see it as well. By way of a little bit of context, we've been in the book of Acts now for the better part of a year, taking it about a chapter at a time. But the thesis of Acts really comes in the very first chapter. It comes in Acts chapter 1, verses 8, where Jesus is looking at his disciples. He's now risen from the grave. He's spent a little bit of time with them, and he tells them this. He says, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. You will be my kingdom carriers, those who bear out the kingdom. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what we see is is that in the life of Jesus, in in really Acts uh, part one, which is just called the the uh, the book of Luke, uh, we see that Jesus is the one who comes bearing the kingdom of God. And he starts outside of Jerusalem and he slowly makes his way into Jerusalem where he is killed on a cross, where he is risen from the grave, and now he is appearing to his disciples, telling them that they will be his witnesses. He is preparing a kingdom now at the right hand of God. This is where kind of uh, the book of Acts uh, starts with his ascension and his declaration that we are carriers of the kingdom. And there at the day of Pentecost, the Spirit falls in tongues of fire, Then Peter begins preaching. Many believe Peter and James are actually elders in the church there at Jerusalem. They are primarily ministering to the Jews. But now we come to the last chapter of Acts. We come to the last verse in Acts. And what we see is is that Paul lived in Rome for two whole years Luke makes a specific point of telling us that they were whole years. They were not partial years. He wasn't there just a short time. He's coming there after uh, two years of imprisonment, another six months of essentially being tossed by the Mediterranean Sea, stranded on an island, and then traveling again, as we will discover today, there to Rome. He spent two additional years there in Rome. And what does he do? If you look at that final verse, verse 31, it says that he welcomed all. All who came to him, proclaiming what? The kingdom, the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. But here's here's our question. How did Paul get there? 
If we're to understand anything of this last chapter in Acts, how did he get there? Last week, what we discovered is, is that there was this spiritual war that was trying to inhibit the advance of the gospel and was specifically trying to hinder him from getting to Rome. And now he is at last arrived. But it hasn't been without a lot of spiritual carnage. He was arrested in Jerusalem. He was beaten there. He had a litany of trials. He was imprisoned for two years. He was nearly drowned in the Mediterranean. He was nearly killed by Roman soldiers so that he didn't escape with others. And finally, he was just bitten by a snake. As if the rest of it wasn't enough, he's come off of having been bitten by a snake, and now he is arriving where Jesus, the resurrected Christ, told him that he would go. Now God's faithfully persevering saint Paul has arrived at Rome only to spend two more years in custody. Why is Paul willing to carry the conquering kingdom when it has been so costly to him? Why has he been willing to to bear out, to, to actually carry this kingdom along with him? Our first point this morning is that this kingdom is a kingdom of hope. But it's not just a kingdom of hope for a few people. It's a kingdom of hope for all people. Verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. So the the sufferings that he has gone through, the the chains have actually gotten him all the way to Rome. He's actually making a connection here if you look at it. He's come all the way to Rome just like Jesus told him that he would. And he's bearing chains. And there's a sense in which we can go, look at this suffering. Look at this suffering servant that is in Paul. But if you stop and consider one more moment, it are the chains that actually have gotten Paul to Rome. When, when Jesus has told him that he will stand before Caesar, the most popular person, the, the, the most known person of the day, the person with the most rule, the most power of that day, he will stand before him. And what has it gotten, what has gotten him to the place where he would stand before Caesar, Caesar but his chains? That's what has gotten him to Rome. That's what will get him an audience with Nero. And he's come here to talk to the Jews and to tell them of the hope of Israel. So Paul has landed in uh, Petoli on the coast of Italy. And he would actually make his way by the Appian Way, which is this long, very straight, probably one of the best kept roads north from Petoli to Rome. And when he gets there, he's actually greeted by Christians. He's greeted by these Christians that he's actually written in other epistles that he has longed to see, that he has prayed for, that he has uh, diligently and dutifully written to. He's greeted by them there on that coastal city. They, some of them coming 20 and 30 miles, walking just to greet him. In verse 15, it says that Paul, on seeing them, thanked God and took courage. And he walks with them walks with them chained all the way to Rome. Verse 17, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. So I I wonder how long after this arduous of a journey, if it had taken you the better part of a year to get where you were going, if you had nearly died time and time again, would you take three days break? Maybe a little longer. Paul takes three days to rest, 
And then what does he do? He calls together the local leaders of the Jews. And he does so so that he can explain why he's there. And he gives us two explanations. The first explanation is the story specifically of how he got there. He said, I I had nothing against our people. He says, our people, counting himself as a Jew. He had nothing against our customs. In fact, once he had been imprisoned, once he had been tried by the Romans, they wished to free him, but the Jews objected. And so he appealed to Caesar. That's why he's here. The first reason, the first explanation that we get is is that he appealed to Caesar. He'd been wrongly accused, and now he's there to stand before Caesar. And interestingly, the Jews say back to him in verse 21, "We, we don't know anything about it. Haven't ever heard anything about it. We received no letters. We received no report. There's no evil that's been spoken against you. But we have heard about this way, this sect, the the so-called Christians, and we desire to hear what you have to say. And so he gives them a second explanation. It is because of the hope. It is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. How is it a hope? Why is it worth wearing the chains? It's because the kingdom of hope is for all people. Verse 23, he says, from morning until evening. He spends an entire day expounding to them, testifying to what the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law and from the prophets. Paul is there with a message of hope. He's testifying to the kingdom. He's convincing them about Jesus. Paul is telling them that the Messiah has come. I want for this to be real to you this morning. These Jews, the the diaspora outside of Israel, would have been in almost every major city of the day. They would have had small synagogues. They would have met together. They would have married with one another. They would have uh, taught their kids together. They would have raised them up. In every Jew, in every city, there would have been some concept of there being a Messiah, one who is foretold to come. Now, they may have had very different ideas about what that is, and that's why Paul's using an entire day just to say, I've heard his name. I've seen him. I know who he is. Do you want to come and listen? And what happens? A great deal, a great number of Jews come and listen to the gospel. We want to hear about this sect. He says, the Messiah has come. I want you to imagine that you were in this long list of generational Jews and you had been waiting, you had been told probably by your great-grandfather about the Messiah that was to come. And here's a man named Paul who's come in chains and he's here to tell you about him. So they use an entire day to listen to this man. And and he uses two places in Scripture. He uses uh, first the law. Why does he use the law? Because he's speaking with Jews. He knows that the Jews know that the law, God's moral law, has a standard of righteousness that the Jews knew that they had broken and needed to make sacrifices for. In fact, these Jews in particular would have not been living in Israel. There would have been a certain amount of weight for not having been near the temple or near where there could be sacrifices made for all of the people. There would have been an unusual amount of focus and yearning and longing for a sacrifice. And here, Paul is saying, I want to testify to the Messiah who has come. I'm going to show you in the law, the standard of righteousness, how far you fall short in your need for a sacrifice. 
But then he also expounds on that by bringing the prophets to bear. He comes bringing the prophets to bear. The prophets told God's people, specifically one, because he'll cite him here in a moment, Isaiah says that out of the anguish of his soul, out of the anguish of the soul of the Messiah, many will be made righteous. So he's saying, here's God's standard. Here's the need for a sacrifice. I know the suffering servant that the prophets talked about. Let me whisper his name to you. His name is Jesus. What Paul is telling them is that Jesus has made a kingdom of hope for all people, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Practically, that just means that Paul goes into city after city, and who is he talking to first? He's talking to the Jews. They have a framework. They were expecting the Messiah. He goes to the Jews first. He proclaims Jesus Christ crucified, risen from the grave. He proclaims the Messiah, and then to the Gentiles. So what is he proclaiming? He's proclaiming a kingdom of hope for all people, but he's also proclaiming a kingdom of healing. A kingdom of healing for the blind and the deaf and the brokenhearted. Where do we see this? Verse 24, it says that some were convinced. Some heard Paul and they were convinced, but others disbelieved. And in verse 25, it says this, And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. So they've listened to him all day long, the whole day. They've listened to him reason from the law and from the prophets. And then at a critical moment when some have believed and some have disbelieved, Paul makes one statement and it comes right out of Isaiah. And he says this, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and their ears can barely hear and their eyes have closed. He's calling them deaf and blind. He's calling them brokenhearted. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, in turn, I would heal them. That's what the prophet Isaiah says to the Jews. And Paul picks this up and he uses it with the Jews to say, you're at a point of decision. You're at a point of decision. This salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. That's what he said. He said in Antioch and in Corinth and in Ephesus and now in Rome, he goes to the Jews first, he proclaims this, and then he moves on to the Gentiles. Paul has carried this message of the conquering kingdom to the Jews at Rome and as a group, they are not receiving it. Does that mean that there weren't some who believed? No, we were told that there are. But as a group, the Jews had not believed. They weren't receiving what Paul was saying. So he tells them this message of hope and healing are for the ones who will listen. Ultimately, Jesus is the healer of all things. He is the king of the kingdom of healing. How do we know? Jesus himself in his own mission statement in Luke chapter 4 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has 
sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus' description of himself. This is Jesus' description of his kingdom, and it's one of wholeness and healing. I wonder this morning, do you feel broken? Do you feel blind? Do you feel deaf? I don't mean in a physical sense. I mean, does your soul feel broken in some way, in need of healing? You feel like you're having a tough time seeing the way things truly are. Do you feel like you have a tough time listening? Jesus is bringing a kingdom of healing for the blind and the deaf and the brokenhearted. And just as Jesus has carried that kingdom and established it in reality, Paul has carried the conquering kingdom of healing to the spiritually blind and deaf and brokenhearted. Some believe his testimony of healing and others don't. So Paul says he will continue on with the Gentiles. Now here's the question for us this morning. How is it that this passage tells us that one receives the kingdom healing? How do both Jews and Gentiles alike enter into the kingdom? How do they do it? How do you do it? How does anybody come into this kingdom of healing? Verse 27. They should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. They should turn. This isn't just Isaiah's message. We're we're reading Isaiah. You get this? Like Paul is quoting Isaiah. This isn't just Isaiah's message from the Old Testament. It was Jesus' message. Repent and believe. But it wasn't just Jesus' message. As Peter looks at Jesus, he models it, and it was also Peter's message. Repent and be baptized. And here, it has become Paul's message as well. Turn and believe, and I would heal them. Turn and believe, and I will heal. That's the message of the gospel. From the Old Testament to the New, straight through to today, turn and believe and be healed. Turn towards the healing Savior, Jesus. Turn away from blind, lustful, covetous sin. Turn from deafening, self-centered pride. Turn from the despair of the heart. And as you turn, Turn towards the healing Savior, Jesus. Why? Because there was no sickness in his heart. There was no blindness in his eyes, no deafness in his ears. Why is that significant? It's because only a wholeheartedly all-seeing, father-hearing Savior can heal you and make you holy. How did God heal the whole world? How does God make a way for you to be healed? He did this by taking on the sickness of your sins on the cross. He takes that sickness. But but there on the cross, I don't know if you remember reading this in the account of the Gospels, at one moment the sky is blackened, dark, and Jesus is blinded. He can't see light. God has turned his back 
put his sin on and all of the sickness on his son. And then darkness comes. Jesus experienced our blindness. And as he cries out to God, the father that had always answered him, the father that had always lived in perfect communion with him, the God that would have answered him anywhere, Jesus hears nothing in response from him. All of the sins of the whole world put on the sinless man. This was the cost of kingdom healing. Jesus' death was the cost of eternal life, eternal healing. This is a message of healing liberation. And and, and this, this message of healing liberation was actually brought to Rome by a man in chains. Do you get the irony here? This message of healing liberation was carried to Rome by a man who was in chains. I mentioned this earlier, but but why in the world would he do it? Why would he be put in chains? Why wouldn't he just run away or talk himself out of it? Why wouldn't he just find a way out? Why would he go to Jerusalem in the first place knowing that he would be arrested there, that he might be beaten there? Why is he now talking to this group of Jews who might be tempted to do the same exact thing. It's because Paul has a different king. He has a different king and a different kingdom. Why is he willing to go into the heart of the known world at that time? Why is he willing to go to Rome? Because Caesar wasn't his king. Rome was not his kingdom. I I mentioned this earlier to our lead team. It's so interesting to me. Every time that I face just a little bit of trial, a little bit of suffering, I get cranky. I get angry. I get frustrated. Any time that I'm faced with even just the slightest amount of discomfort, I get self-righteous. I try to figure out a way to get around whatever it is that's in my way. But that wasn't the way that Paul was. Paul is now, at the end of the time that he is in prison, he will have been in prison for the better part of five years of suffering. And you have to know from reading the epistles that it wasn't as though Paul was unambitious. We know specifically from his tutoring, from the teaching that he received when he was young, we know for a fact that he was a very ambitious, very intelligent person. It had to have been excruciating. To just be sitting in a home, chained one hand to another with a Roman guard. That's that's what was happening here. He was allowed not to go to prison. That was a grace. But what he had was a chain actually chaining himself to a soldier in this house. That's why he says this chain. Why did he do it? Caesar was not his king. Rome was not his kingdom. He had a different king and a different kingdom. What was it? It's a kingdom of hope, kingdom of healing for the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God. This is the final point this morning. It is the kingdom of God, and he was proclaiming it with all boldness. Verse 30. He lived there two whole years But what does he do while he was living there in confinement? He welcomed all. He welcomed everybody. 
though Paul was brought to Rome in chains, though he was brought literally handcuffed to a Roman soldier, his voice was free to proclaim the king. Verse 31, Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Time and time again, we see the phrase kingdom of God. We see kingdom of God mentioned time and time again throughout all of Scripture. But you know who used it the most? Jesus. Jesus talked all the time about the kingdom. Too often, we we tend to think of the gospel of Jesus Christ as a means of personal salvation or a personal relationship with Jesus. But Jesus was always thinking about, talking about, establishing the kingdom. I went back in, the, uh, in, in uh, Luke and found 44 times where the kingdom of God, not just kingdom, kingdom of God was mentioned in Luke. So Luke writes the gospel of Luke, and then he writes Acts, and now he is using the same language that Jesus taught him to use. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. Who said that? Jesus did. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. What was the purpose of Jesus' life and death and resurrection? It was to preach the good news of the kingdom. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Teaching the disciples to pray, he taught them to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. At the Last Supper, uh, he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Why? I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Why, Why did he do it? Because he will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus was always talking about the kingdom of God. Let me ask you this. What is the kingdom of God? Can Can I admit something to you? After studying, I mean, for years, but then also studying this entire week, trying to button it up and just give it to you, like, just in one simple statement, here's the truth. The kingdom of God is mysterious. It is amazing. It is gargantuan. It is huge. It is too high for me to give you in just one simple statement. The kingdom of God is what Jesus came to proclaim with his whole life. So lest I think that I would be able to just give it to you on a silver platter, I can't. It's too great. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. He who is seated on the throne, Revelation 21 says, Behold, I am making all things new. The kingdom of God is a recreation of creation itself, where sickness and sin and death are no more. I wonder if you have a longing for that kind of kingdom. I wonder if just the day in and day out aches and pains of life, not just your joints, the heartache, the blindness, the deafness that we were talking about earlier. I wonder if you have a sense of longing for the kind of kingdom that Jesus talks about. There's a man in Luke named Joseph who had this kind of longing. 
And it led him to serve Jesus in a really unique way. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. What's that? He was a member of the council that just tried Jesus, that just convicted and condemned Jesus. This man was a member of the council, but he was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. Do you have a longing for the kingdom of God? Joseph of Arimathea was looking for the kingdom of God. What did he do? The man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb of cut stone where no one had ever been laid. Are you looking for the kingdom of God? Are you longing for the kingdom of God? Are you longing for the kingdom of God like Jesus longed for the kingdom? Are you longing like Peter longed for the kingdom? Are you longing like Paul longed for the kingdom? Are you longing even just in this simple way, this desire to serve Jesus in really simple ways? Are you longing like Joseph of Arimathea longed for the kingdom of God? For those of us who are longing, for who are looking, for, for those of us who have indeed found the kingdom of God in Jesus, here's the question for us out of this text this morning. How then shall we live? How shall we do it? I found this a, a really helpful question to be asking as we've gone through Acts. Why? Because there's a very repetitive story that happens at the end of Acts as, as Luke is really exalting the ministry of Paul. He, he gives us time and time again a very similar story. And so this morning, what I've, uh, what I've done is the same thing that I've been doing in weeks past. How does this have any application for us? How should we go about living? If we long for the kingdom of God, how should it impact the way that we are living Christians carry the conquering kingdom of God. But we do it in some very specific ways. I've already given them to you this morning. I want to remind you of them. Christians carry the conquering, hopeful kingdom of God. Christians carry the conquering, healing kingdom of God. And how do we do it? We do it boldly and we do it freely. We do it boldly. And we do it freely. Verse 30 says that Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that tell us today? That tells me that Christians have the delightful duty to preach the kingdom and teach other people about our king. And Paul gives us an example of that. How this week can you go about proclaiming the kingdom of God? Uh, both in word and in just delightful duty in your life. Maybe there's a way for mothers to go about proclaiming the kingdom of God in their mothering this week. Maybe there is a, a way for students as they come out of that season of education into whatever season is next. And you have this really unique season of your life, this really amazing opportunity to declare the kingdom of God. How are you going to do it? It's got to be in deed. It's got to be in word. 
It must be in deed and in word. But here's a word of warning that I have for us. Here's the question that kind of comes into my heart when I see things like this declared. Here's the question. What if we don't? What if we look at all of these examples here? What if we hear the call to proclaim the kingdom and then we just don't do it? Can I give you a really serious word of warning this morning? If you don't, can you really say that he is really your king? If you don't declare the kingdom of God, can we really say that we are in his kingdom? If we really do say that there is a hopeful kingdom and we don't tell anybody about it, we don't live like it at all, can we really say that there's hope? Can we really say that we have this hope? If we say that we are serving a healing king in Jesus and that we see a kingdom of forever, eternal healing on the horizon and we don't say anything to anybody who is sick, can we really say that we have been healed? These are the questions that I had to ask myself this week. When looking at the passage, this is what I have to look at and go, am I proclaiming the gospel? You might be tempted to think, well, of course you are. You've got a stage. You're standing on a box. You're literally standing on a soapbox. That's not the question. Am I declaring with my life that Jesus is hopeful, that he is a healer, that he has a conquering kingdom that is meant to sweep up all of human history into a sinless, amazing, forever kingdom? Do I really believe it? Do I really say it to other people? But he doesn't just proclaim the kingdom. He doesn't just teach about the Lord Jesus Christ. He does it in two specific ways. He says that he does it with all boldness. Not just a little boldness, all boldness. And without hindrance. How much hindrance? Without any. That's how specific this passage is. If Jesus is king, we are in his kingdom. And he is actually revealing all of this in a very specific way to us through his word, through our experience, through our relationship, through the spirit in our people here at City Church. We experience his kingdom. Why then aren't we bold? Paul was constantly persecuted by his own people. And yet they're the first people that he ever went to talk to in any city that he went to. Did you get that? It wasn't the Gentiles that were as much persecuting Paul. They, they got in on the action, but it wasn't like every time. Every time that Paul went to a new city, it was the Jews that persecuted him. It was his own people. He said, our people, our law, our culture. He's using that word specifically throughout this text, and yet those are the people that persecuted him most. Don't you think he was a little tempted and I'm here in Rome. There, there's only a few, you know, Jews around anyway. I'm just going to skip them. They don't need this. I don't need this. Maybe. But he didn't. He was bold. And despite all of the suffering that his own people had caused, they are the first. 
and he's bold, and he pulls no punches. He literally spends an entire day with them, quoting Isaiah, calling them deaf and blind. Here's what we've got to take hold of this morning. We've got to believe that this kingdom is real and that it is eternal. You know, I've been thinking the last few weeks, there's a really famous verse in our scriptures that say that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The gates of hell will not, and I've always thought, man, that's a really, man, that's just a really curious statement. How can the gates of hell not prevail against the church? The, The reason why was because I had this misconception. As I was thinking about it, I was thinking about the gates of hell pushing against the church. And I was thinking, how does a gate try to push against the church? I realized that I had it all backwards. My my experience says that the world persecutes us. And so I was kind of internalizing that and thinking for a moment that it is the gates of hell that press and persevere against the church and they won't do it. That's not true. The kingdom of God is pressing against the gates of hell and the gates will not stand. The gates will not stand. We serve an amazing God with an amazing kingdom, and it is eternal. It is everlasting. The gates of hell, even the gates of hell, cannot withstand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing will hinder the kingdom of God. When we believe this, then we will carry that conquering kingdom of God as co-conquerors with Christ. I want to finish this morning at the very end of Scripture because sometimes uh, heavy passages like this uh, can kind of get lost. You know, we can just kind of wade into them and man, you know, I don't know exactly where I come out on all of this. I don't know how to experience this kingdom I want to encourage you this morning with Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. John says this of this kingdom, this everlasting kingdom. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had just passed away. And the sea was no more. It's a curious thing. The the sea represented chaos. It represented chance. It represented destruction. Maybe we even know a little bit more about that because of Tyler's sermon a few weeks ago when uh, Paul was literally on the Mediterranean getting uh, just pummeled by waves, the sea, chaos, no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will be with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the kingdom of God that he has brought through his conquering king, his son, Jesus. Let's pray.
God and Father, I pray that the Christians here would carry the kingdom and that we would do it boldly and freely. Lord, that we would be convinced in our souls that uh, we serve a conquering king and that we are co-conquerors with him. Father, I pray that in the midst of that, that when we experience trial and tribulation, suffering, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sore, that we would remember your words to us in Romans. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors, Father. We are more than conquerors. We are co-conquerors with Christ through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor heights nor depths nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from your love, Father, in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we pray all of these things in his holy name. Amen.